Welcome to a Longer Table podcast, a space for real and sometimes hard conversations that will often challenge your perspective and always empower you to pull up more seats around your own table. I'm your host, Amanda Carpenter. Let's dive in. Today, I have Barry at the table. Barry Farmer is from Richmond, Virginia, and Barry actually grew up in kinship care, which is a form of foster care. So he has experience as a former foster youth. And for the last 15 years of his life, he has been devoted to working inside and outside the classroom with youth and their families. At the young age of 20, Barry became a foster father, a single foster father with a local therapeutic agency to help within his community. At age 22, people are you hearing this? I'm like, age 22, Barry adopted his oldest son. I'm just like, what? That's crazy. And so awesome. And then three years later, Barry had two younger sons placed with him, making him now the proud father of three amazing young men. So there's a lot I could say about you, Barry, but I can't wait to just have a conversation and let people get to know you for themselves. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So let's back up to the fact that you became a dad at 22. Right. Did you ever think that that was going to be your story? Let me tell you, um, in the beginning, when I became a licensed foster parent, it takes a while. And even when I was getting licensed, the um, director was very upfront with me as a single male. Don't look for any placements anytime soon. Cool. No problem. I have things I could be doing in between times just to get ready. And um, I did. And I, um, you know, going in, I knew nothing about only from my experience, my perspective that I know about foster care and kinship care. That's all I knew. Not the part where you could adopt from foster care, not that the part where it was even an option. I didn't know that. So I was just going in to help, you know, to do my part, to give back, to give guidance, um, to um, validate emotions that may come along with it. Nothing about adopting a child this that early i did have you know dreams of adopting one day but it was definitely not going to be at 22 years old wow so did let's back up did you want to become a foster parent because you had experienced foster care yourself and so it was just sort of like well yeah i want to do this because there are kids there's needs and i want to help was that really the motive for you uh part of it First part was I was working in a child care center and I was working really hard. I mean, I was working like 50 hours a week. Um, I was really looking for another job is what I was doing. And I picked up an unemployment guy that we have locally. And I was looking to be a tractor trailer driver. So I thought, oh, I always had tractor trailer jobs. Let me see how can I get licensed in there. And I saw an ad that said, become a foster parent today, ages 18 and up. And I said, mm, well, I'm 19 about to be 20. So I wanted to be taken seriously if I applied for this foster care because I really wasn't doing anything fulfilling at that point in my eyes. So I was like, well, to pass the time, you know, take care of them for a little bit to go back home. You know, that's the way I thought of it. That's the way it was presented. (laughs) And and that's the way it it works a lot of time. Right. That's what I thought. So I just went that route because I felt it was something I wanted to do, that I should do, that I could do, even at that age. I love it. So you took the steps, you get this boy. Mm -hmm. How long did you have him before it was clear that this was, he was eligible for adoption and you were interested in adopting him? Uh, A few months. So it was pretty quick. 
very quick, very unexpected, very quick. Um, it was supposed to go back home. Of course, it's like it's a, that's how it's supposed to work. But um, it came up, and I and to be honest, I was not first choice as for home for him to be adopted. So, you know, and I was that was understanding, but they did ask. They were like, "Would you consider?" And I was like, "Well, sure." As, as if you're going to pick me, I'm 21 years old at the time. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm not expecting you guys to pick me at any point. So, but they, he did want to stay. So he wanted to stay. We had built a bond over those few months, which led up to longer months because he was still there. And, you know, he actually did go somewhere else. But within days, he wanted to return. So, mm. you know, that just let me know that uh, our bond was really had it really began to grow. Yeah. And um, skin tone didn't get in the way. Yeah. So we haven't, I don't think I've mentioned that, but you're black and your kids are white. And so I do want to get into that because we're a transracial family. And and Mm -hmm. so there's so much that I think is important um, when when we're talking about that. But I guess I have one more question for you before we go that direction. As as a young guy, I mean, most of the guys I know at 20, 21, 22 are not thinking about relationships or kids. And I love Mm -hmm. that obviously your life set you up differently and what you Mm -hmm. cared about in your heart was clearly mature enough Mm -hmm. and ready to parent. And so you, you took, or, or even if you weren't ready, you stepped in, took the risk and, and you, you know, maybe it was a sink or swim situation and you swam clearly because your son had a bond with you. He ends up becoming eligible for adoption. You adopt him. Was there ever a point where you hesitated on proceeding with forever, like with the thought of like, oh, but what if I want to get married someday? Or was that not even mm-hmm. on your radar? I'm just curious because I have to imagine it would have been on mine. No, it didn't. Let me tell you why. <laughs> because before he came, I had already moved out on my own. I had my own place. I had a relationship that I was in for about a few years. Me and her didn't work out right before he arrived. So every I wasn't really missing anything. I had done it all. We had I had a living girlfriend. I had my own place. I, you know, going to places that I like to go frequently. I never was anyone to hang out late at night or do the what is it clubbing or <laughs> any or bar hopping or anything like that. So that's not my style. That's not my lifestyle. My lifestyle is pretty laid back. It's really simple. And adding a child to it didn't disrupt that. Yeah. Oh, I just think it's so cool. And I think it's really selfless. And I know sometimes it can feel weird to like receive that kind of praise because I, I, exactly. <laughs> you know, I know because on the other side, I'm always hearing like, oh, you're so self, And it feels icky because I'm kind of like, actually, I'm just as selfish as you. I just live a different life. Like we all have our things, right? So, okay, Barry. So you get, you adopt your son. Um, you end up adopting two more children, your, or I don't know if it was legally adoption, but you have three kids that are yours Mm -hmm. and they're white and you're black. A lot of times, uh, I think that people see white families raising black kids. Right. And one of the things that I feel is important to share with listeners, and I'm curious if you agree with this or not. I believe there are just as many, if not more black and brown people fostering and adopting. It's just not publicized usually as often Mm -hmm. as white families live publicly is do you think that's true or no i do think that's true and i'll tell you why when i was going through the process there were more black folks 
I'll say folks, I'm, I'm Virginia, so I'm in the South, folks. <laughs> <laughs> there were more black folks in the trainings than there were white folks. Even when we complete a training and we get to, together with the rest of the families that are already licensed, there were still more black people in the trainings than there were white families in the training. And I, any agency that I've been with, and I only was with about two or three, um, there were always more black families than white families that I came in contact with. I don't know if it, it wasn't the part of town or anything like that because we were in the area where there were, it was kind of predominantly white. That's where the offices were. So it wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with that. It was just the way that I saw it. My perspective is what I saw. And yeah. I saw more black families than white families. And we, we don't, not to say, you know, white people belong more but we don't do that that's not how we express we're more in our community we just do it so to speak um and that's the way i do it i mean i know i write little blog posts here and there but i'm not a blogger <laughs> right right <laughs> but like i tell people you know i don't know if we get into this later about the media part of our story but people don't people when they read things in the media about me they act like we just did this. We just became a family. I just adopted three white kids. No, that's not how this works. We're minding our business. <laughs> yeah. Already five, seven years into this whole thing, then you found out about us. So, you know, and, and when you found out about us, you had never seen it before. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But, yes. Yeah. But, but we were the ones who was the light was shined on so that part of it you know and they're all oh, the three brothers he took three brothers and they are not biologically related <laughs> but people assume just because they're they white did. kids yeah yeah and you know most people don't click the the article anyway to see go by what they see in the comment yeah and that's fine <laughs> well i i would agree with what you said because my husband and i are the only white a foster couple of our agency. So out of over, I think it's like between 40 and 60 families, we're the only white mm. ones with our agency. Oh, and look at that. And we're in Chicago. And so some people would say, oh, it's your location. But no, there are also, I really don't think that has to do with it, um, to be honest with you. But mm -hmm. um, I, I do think that white people just tend to live more public lives, or at least that's what I see within the, within the foster community. Um, right. But I think it's interesting that you're, you adopted your sons and you guys were a family just doing your thing. And then right. somehow the media gets, you know, finds out about your story, sees you guys mm -hmm. and is like, oh, we've never seen anything like it. A single black dad <laughs> right. of three white boys. And so you get all this media attention. That makes sense that you would be like, we're not new. This is. We're not new. <laughs> <laughs> and That's what it... <laughs> you're not the only ones. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. And, but... I, and I often feel that I don't remember any media coverage of any black family adopting a white child before us. I could be wrong, but it seemed like after us and you see the attention that the media outlets get that they now, it's like almost like you're searching for us now. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have cameras in our adoption ceremony because we were just doing our thing. It was yeah. bummed we're in and out because we already lived this. Each child was adopted individually. No one really knew but me and the child because that we were the only ones that was that was there. 
and yeah. the lawyer and whatnot. No extended family. This was us. Yeah. This yeah. is our thing, you know. And now we have cameras in the courtroom. And we have Videographer, limo, suits. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing. Do your thing. Yeah. You know, I'm not knocking anybody that does that. But it seems before us, that was, I don't, I really never saw it before. I knew we were rare, but I didn't care that we were rare. I wasn't out there looking. I didn't do no research. We just went on about our business. Yeah. And there, yeah. And there were, now, uh, I don't have a problem sharing our story, my story. I don't have a problem sharing my family to an extent, you know, and I keep it very limited. I mean, when you see pictures, they're very old pictures. They're probably pictures before you, y'all even thought about us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and doing the radio show, you know, people automatically assume that I was doing a radio show about foster care and adoption. And I'm not doing it. I, you know, I get tired of foster care and adoption. <laughs> so, I actually agree with that completely. Right? Yes, yes. And that's no, I mean, that's not putting down foster care and adoption, but that's not... It's not my niche. Can I say that's what it is? It's not my yes. niche. It's yeah. not, you know, what I'm putting all my energy into. I put energy into it because I'm passionate about it, because I lived it. I do it. That's why I do it. That's why I say things that I say on the blogs. That's why I share what I share. I don't have time to do stage photos of us doing activities because that's not us. Yeah. We live in a frat house. It's a mess around here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was gonna say four guys, and you're right. still single. So, so right. okay. I have to ask: Do you have a desire to date, and do you date? I date in my own time here and there. You know, to build a relationship. No, have fun. Yes, but that's just it. You know, I have responsibilities. Yeah, and I understand what relationships are. Relationships are you considering somebody else's feelings, being having to compromise with someone else. I don't have time for that right now. Yeah, you're raising three kids, right? (laughs) So, do your boys ever talk about a desire for a mom or or a mom figure, or do they? Do you have female friends in your life who kind of fill that role, or do you just get to be mom and dad? (laughs) uh, They don't ex for mom they we do have female figures that they go to and i am mom and dad so i can be a drill i'm like I, i'm a drill sergeant with a balloon okay so it's like i can be stern i can be loving i can be in between yeah yeah what has been the like what have you learned the most by raising white kids what have you personally learned the most Ooh. Well, let's back up. When I first started this, my, my interactions with children were only interactions with African-American children in the inner city. I never really came in contact with white children up until my son came. So I knew nothing. I knew nothing about haircuts. I knew nothing about sunscreen. I'd have burnt them. I burnt them a few times when he came. <laughs> You know, um, clothing, I tried to go about, but I did go and ask my white co-workers, I was working in the summer camp. Yeah, I had white co-workers that I just started working with. So that was my first time working with white people, (laughs) to a sense, so closely. So I went to them and asked them, you know, where do you go get your haircut? What do I say when you go get a haircut? Because I'm from the black community where I can just walk in the barbershop and say, give me an even, and they know exactly what I'm talking about. 
not go into supercuts and be like, do you want three inches off the side? Do you want to use clippers six and seven? And blah, blah, blah. I don't know. <laughs> so, so you can start asking me that. I bring out a picture. I would make him look like this. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That's what he wants to look like. Make him look like this. And that's all you need to do. Because God, all that other stuff, I have no idea. And I tried to learn, and I'm like, I don't know what this is. But we know pictures. You know how to, you know what a picture looks like? So do that. Yep. Um, but, you know, try to, but when, one thing I did do, unknowingly, but instinctively, I should say, is I moved. Because we were living in an urban area in Richmond, Virginia, where my oldest son was like a little white spot on a black blanket. And it kind of made me feel uncomfortable. I'm like, I feel like I'm, he's missing something. You know, and he doesn't come in contact. He's like the only child in the neighborhood where we live. So he's not coming in contact with people that look like him on a daily basis and is making me feel some type of way. Me, not him. He can, he's going to adjust, and that's not okay with me. I need him to see people that look like him on a daily basis. I need people like him that look like him to teach him, you know, to interact with him at some point. So we did move. And we moved. We had to move to the suburbs. I mean, that's just the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> we had yeah. to move to the suburbs. And it was a diverse, it wasn't predominantly white. It's just a more diverse area where you can come in contact with people that look like him, along with others, that you can gain an understanding about their background as well. Yeah, preach. I mean, that's been a recurring theme in conversations I've had with adoptees and um, just so many different people recently. This is coming up on the podcast. So my listeners are probably like, okay, we get it. You're you're driving this point home. But you know what? It's important. Whether you're raising kids, I guess the bottom line, I think what I'm hearing from you and what I appreciate you sharing is if you're going to raise children of a different ethnicity. Yes it is really important that they see themselves and interact with people who look like them and they're connected to their culture. So for you, that's white kids. For me, that's black kids. And it's so, it's so important. I mean, even I love that you're, that you've addressed this, even though the world is, uh, the standard is white. So you should, you don't have to go, I think out of your way as much probably because your kids are going to see themselves on advertisements. Right. Your kids are going to, you know, but for people like myself who are raising black and brown children, it's even more, I think, important that we go out of our way. And so I know my husband and I right now, we just foster to reunify. So adoption hasn't even come up. We've every child that we've had in our care has reunited either um, with their biological parent or a, a relative. And, and that's great. That's something to celebrate. It's pretty rare. Um, and then one of our children recently left to try a different foster family um, of the same ethnicity. And we supported that decision. It was really hard, but right. we, we support it. Um, I forget where I was even going with that. But all that to say, I feel you and mm. I appreciate, I think it's a huge, admirable and honestly the right thing to have right. moved to a more diverse community because what people don't realize isolation is real and culture is real and when you take someone and isolate them into a certain culture they become that yeah. and it's not authentic to what they are supposed to be experiencing now uh, if you have you live in Iowa and you decided that you need to adopt, adopt yourself a little African American child where in Iowa do you need to move so they can see them and not be amazed 
when they see the Onabi fill out a place once they become of age and be like, well, I did not experience any of this. What is going on? What is this? What is this? You know, that is real. And I think the same thing can happen to a white child in a black home when you are so submerged in a culture that you don't need, when it's time to blossom out, you don't even know what you're looking at right now. You don't even know, why am I talking like this? Why am I, what is this dialect that I'm using right now? What are these words? And because when you're in a certain culture, we stick to it. We, we, we're watching mostly black television and um, more urban music, even though urban's for, music is for everyone, but we have our things that we are connected to. And if we're connected to them, you're connected to them. Now, I can honestly tell you, before my kids came, I was not as diverse in mindset as I am now. Not in the way that I present myself, not in the way, not in my music. I'm more diverse in my music now. Oh, my God, my friends can tell you that even in radio, I'm like, oh, I'm more mainstream, urban, sometimes country, sometimes... Oh, this is just, you know, and I'm glad about it because now I'm, I'm, I feel more diverse. I feel more, you know, well-rounded. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I would echo that for my own life. So I think it's so cool. It's one of the gifts that you don't know you're going to get when you become a foster right. parent. So it's mm-hmm. so beautiful. Um, okay. So I don't know if we entirely answered the question, but I, I feel like you did. But if you want to add anything to what you learned, uh, not only by raising white kids, but by becoming a single parent, what's been the hardest thing or what have you learned through that experience? How has it changed you? Parenting on a daily basis has made me more patient, more think outside the box, more understanding, even though I have been working with children. These are someone else's children. When I come home to my own children, there is a way that I deal with each one of them differently. You know, um, I'm not a blanket parent where I think one thing's going to work for each child. That's not the way it's going to work. When you have three different children from three different backgrounds on three different circumstances, so it's just not going to work that way. And you have to learn that. And you learn that in the classroom. You got different kids coming from different backgrounds and different circumstances. You got to deal with each one differently when it comes to certain things. So, you know, that's what I learned the most is that I could do it. I said I could do it. But, you know, saying and doing are two different things. And when if you want to say that you can do something, now you have something to prove. Now you know you can do this on a daily basis. I don't know what I am going to do when these children are fully grown and I haven't, you know, I'm not caring for them no more. I'm not going to wake up and they're going to be here. They're going to be on their own. It scares me. It scares me, Amanda. And yeah, to be an like, empty nester. To be an empty nester at before 40 and be... <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> and to get your life back on track as, a, as still someone who's working um, in the media and, you know, finding your way again, but this time your responsibility level has depleted. You know, you, you can't always feel some sense of responsibility as a parent, right. but now it's time for my children to be responsible for themselves. Te- I got two teenagers now. I have one that's graduating next week, you know, so it's, you know, I'm trying to wrap my head around that. Of Now you have to, let them go a little bit and you have to let them make their own mistakes and decisions without worrying about it and i didn't prepare for that part (laughs) i did not prepare for that part but i'm gonna have to live with that part that part does scare me 
But, you know, I think that I could say the same for my grandmother who raised me, that that part probably scared her too without her even knowing. Yeah. And look how good you turned out. So it all works out in the end. Um, I guess one of my final questions that I want to hear from you about is how can communities, how can friends and family and just communities in general better support single parents? Um, what I think is a single parent household is just as good as a two parent household. Amen. They play both roles. And just because there there's nobody to back you up, so to speak, you know, we're not crippled because we don't have a partner or whatnot. We can we can do this. Um, you know, I don't think there is anything to explain to a single parent. We probably have more single parents these days than we do couples. So, you know, I, I don't have anything to say about that, unfortunately. No, but that's, but that's good. <laughs> I, I love just the reminder that, that it's, single parent households are, and single parenting is not less than. Um, I just know that in my life, I want to always make sure that I'm inclusive in my language. And I know that that's something I've had to work on because again, my experience is parenting as a married woman with my husband. But um, there are so many people, especially in my audience that are doing it on their own and doing it well. And I just am always trying to learn from them. So I think it's- I think what you said is awesome. I guess one final uh, opportunity really for you, just to remind you, this podcast is called A Longer Table because my intention is truly to let everyone's voice be heard. Any perspective and belief, any person, uh, what sometimes I have people on that I completely disagree with and that's totally fine too. <laughs> is there anything else that you think would be valuable to share with people today? Um, yeah. I will say this, because I always say this when I'm somewhere speaking. Um, Let's not be afraid of our older foster youth. Let's not judge them before they reach the door. Let's understand that what they've been through most adults can't even handle in a week. They've been doing it their whole lives. Um, I say often that all foster children, are these are some resilient individuals. And they, I look at them like diamonds in the rough. Someone quoted me the other day saying that. They are diamonds in the rough. A diamond in the dirt is still a diamond. But now when you take it out of the dirt and you nurture it and you try to put some love on it and make it shine real good, it is still that same diamond that you found in the dirt. It's still valuable. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. It's so powerful. I love your heart and advocacy for older foster youth and the way that you don't just talk the talk, but you walk the talk. You've lived it. You you. are living it. So thank you so much. Your voice and perspective and your family is so valuable. And I'm so glad that you're around our table. Thank you. Appreciate the invite.